And once you make personal change, you inspire so many people. Even, and you, you can even do it. You don't have to be in a band. You don't have to be, you know, have a huge podcast to do this. You could just be a regular everyday Joe. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 Knows. I will do my best to keep this introduction brief because today's guest, John Purcelli, and I really delve into a major conversation that covers a lot of ground. You'll hear me make reference to many of his accomplishments throughout the interview, and we'll put links to his storied past in the show notes at 10,000knows.com. To set it up, this is what you really need to keep in mind as you listen. The choice to follow your own intuition, to not worry what others think about what you're doing, if it makes sense to you, and to trust that if you do those first two things, eventually the people around you that doubt you or talk about you or somehow try to knock you off course, they'll come around. And eventually it'll be revealed that their hangups had far more to do with them than you. This man is a cult hero to many, particularly in the New York City punk rock scene of the late 80s and early 90s, but he's reinvented himself and continues to follow his bliss as a yoga instructor, a Hare Krishna, and an entrepreneur. Big shout out to fellow John Jay High School grad, Chris Howard, who made me aware of John Purcelli. Thank you, Howie. And as always, if you dig this show, please share it with your friends. I think John's message is an important one, and I'd love for more people to hear it, be inspired by it. So please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts to help our visibility. I'd also love to shout out to today's sponsor, Poopery. Yes, I am grateful that they sponsor the show, but my family is grateful for the protection of their nostrils and overall well-being after I've used the bathroom. Hey, now, here's how it works. It's quite brilliant, actually. All you do, you spray the bowl before you go, and a layer of essential oils traps bathroom odor before it begins. It is guaranteed, guys. It's available in a variety of scents and sizes so that every bathroom is stocked. And they also now, they have this this hand sanitizer. It's a moisturizing blend of coconut and lavender that kills 99.9% of germs in 15 seconds. That's pretty fast. 10% of profits are being donated to Texas charities and additional quantities are being donated to medical professionals in need. And if you go to poopery.com, you can use Del Negro 15. That is the code Del Negro 15 for 15% off your order of $25 or more. You do that at checkout at poopery.com. That is because you are a loyal 10,000 nose listener. What will not work as a code is Porcelli15, but listening to John Porcelli will increase your chances of self-fulfillment. So here he is, today's guest, John Porcelli. Punk is huge now. Punk is mainstream. You have bands like Green Day with, you know, double platinum records. But when I was in John Jay in the early 80s, punk was so unknown and so underground 
that, you know, for me to show up at John Jay in a very, very, I mean, you remember how it was. It was a super preppy high school. You know, people would wear the polo shirts with the collars popped and, you know, the IZOD shirts with the polo, with the button down polo shirt over it. And it was very clicky and it was very like upper middle class. And, you know, for, for me to show up at John Jay with like a leather jacket on and my, you know, hair all spiked and crazy clothes, you know, it was, it was very, very different. And it was very, very, um, uh, unaccepted. And it was something that, you know, people just didn't know about, like what, what's punk music. So at the time that I started going to punk shows, punk was very nihilistic. It was very, you know, all the lyrics were just kind of complaining about society. You know, there was a, there was a ton of drugs. Like you would go to shows. And I remember like the first time I went to CBGB's, which was that famous um, alternative club in New York city. Yeah, you'd go into the bathroom. There'd be people shooting heroin in the bathroom. Like I'm from Westchester. I never saw anybody shooting heroin. Yeah. And you know, and you see it, and you, you know, there's people sniffing glue, like just right out in the open. And it was it was dark. You know, I was really attracted to the power of the music, the energy of the music. I was also attracted to the kind of counterculture. Um, vibe and the outsider vibe because you know i really didn't feel like at john jay that i really fit in too much i mean i i almost felt like that high school was sort of grooming you for a material success that i just wasn't really into you know it was sort of like a it was a machine to crank out doctors and lawyers and architects and you know i just had a different calling in life and um, so I didn't really feel like I fit in. I felt like a, a black sheep at the school. So punk for me was very attractive in that sense that <clears throat> it was kind of like all the misfits of society that felt like they were square pegs and round holes kind of got together and they formed their own kind of counter society. So all those things I really loved about punk, the freedom of expression, the fact that you didn't have to be a virtuoso to play music, you know, back when we were kids, the big bands were like Rush and Led Zeppelin. And, you know, the musicianship was so high that even though if you wanted to be a musician, it just felt so out of reach. But I remember when I heard that band, the Ramones, and it was all just like three chords, but it was great music and it was incredible. And like, they weren't, they didn't look like rock stars. They were just like, you know, regular guys from Queens. Yeah. Really inspired me. Like, Hey, if the Ramones can do it, I can do it too. I can start a band. I feel his passion to play music. I feel um, that I have things to say that I would love to kind of express on stage. And so punk kind of gave me an outlet and gave me confidence that I could do that. And it was empowering. So there was a lot of things that I loved about punk, but then there was also a lot of things that I didn't like. The negativity, the nihilism, the, nihilism, the violence. I mean, you would go to these shows, it was almost like taking your life into your hands. I mean, the Lower East Side back then yeah. was a dangerous place. I mean, now it's, um, you know, where CBGB's was, it's like a super nice neighborhood. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, but back then, the cops wouldn't even go there. That's how dangerous the neighborhood was. So... It was a lot of drugs, a lot of darkness, a lot of negativity, which really wasn't my thing. Like I was just, I think just naturally I, had, I was just a more kind of positive person, a more kind of life affirming person, a person that liked to be inspired. I didn't really want, I didn't 
even from an early age, I didn't want to be one of those type of people that just complained and bitched about things. Like I wanted to be a person that changed things. Yeah. And, and so I got together with, um, I got together with this other person from Danbury that I met at shows. His name was Ray Capo. And so we started that band youth of today um, with the main objective being like, you know what? We're not into this stuff. We're going to be the punk rock of punk rock. We're going to be the alternative of the alternative. Like, you know, we were both like athletic. I was on the football team. I saw a, a value in exercising and taking care of your health and eating healthy. And, you know, eventually I became a vegetarian, you know, as you know, when I graduated high school. So these things were like foreign topics in the hardcore scene. The hardcore scene was always about fuck you, fuck everything. I don't care. You know, that was sort of like a big thing. I don't care. I don't care about life. I don't care about anything. Yeah. Um, that wasn't my thing. And that wasn't Ray Capo's thing either. So when we started the band youth of today, we were both straight edge. We didn't drink. We didn't do drugs. Yeah. Um, try doing that at John Jay in the early eighties. It was a huge party school. I don't know if, what it was like. It was probably the same, the same when, when you were there. Too. I think it was a little less, um, you know, it, it was, I, I kind of wasn't in that same, same thing. I played sports. I was pretty, um, you know, I was pr kind of pretty clean. I mean, I drank, you know, by the end of it, but I never saw anything. I know it was going on, but I, I didn't see a lot of it. And my sense is that it was even more so when you guys were, you know, when you were there, you're my sister's age, that's five years ahead. That's a big, a big difference. And I, maybe it's because I was younger and I would hear stories, but I remember thinking like, oh God, it's crazy up there at the high school, you know, and, and it's, it's also interesting to hear you say that it was like a factory pumping out, you know, lawyers and doctors, because I, I actually feel that as I've gone out into the world, a lot of really interesting people and careers have come from, you know, high school friends. Like when I speak to other people about some of my friends, it's like, huh. I actually feel like it's an eclectic group and I don't know if that was just my group of friends or what, but anyway, it's, it's just interesting to hear the different, you know, uh, observations of it. It could have been, you know, there was a very big shift in culture from like the eighties going into the nineties. Yeah. I think, you know, my generation was real sort of fast times at Ridgemont high, go out, party, get crazy. Um, you know, all the movies kind of reflected that. And John Jay was like that. I mean, yeah. We would get drunk every Friday and every Saturday night, regardless if we had to drag a keg into the woods behind school <laughs> or, you know, there was that woods that was between the high school and um, the movie theater that was over there. Yeah. You know, where that stream was, yeah. we would just drag a keg or get a you know bunch of cases of beer. And it was like, that was sort of mandatory. Like if you wanted to be the cool kid at school, you were drinking, even it meant drinking cold in, in the woods. It was just kind of like what we did. We were just bored suburbanites or whatever. So that kind of became the culture. Let me and ask you something, John. Well, you're, that uh, kind of boldness that you had where, and, and we'll kind of get into some of the things I read in one of these particular, this article in particular, but this boldness of like unapologetically going into New York City and standing for something in a scene and a culture that really 
probably didn't want you right off the bat and you kind of changed, you you really kind of like upended it in a way. Um, was that something that was with you when you were a kid? Like your, Were your parents instrumental in that or where did that come from? Like, was it a hardheadedness that served you in sports that then translated over to, uh, to, to music and to the scene? Could be. I mean, I always had that nature that it was kind of just a little bit outspoken and kind of loud mouth. <laughs> and, you know, Ray Capo, who was a singer for the band, was like that a hundred times. He's like Mr. Confident, Mr. Bold. He's like he's a real leader, even to this day. You know, he's a famous yoga teacher now. He's, uh, he's famous pretty much all over the world. He does workshops and, and retreats and um, it was pretty big time in the yoga scene. So uh, we were both kind of like that. And it was very, very, very much like how you said that when we started this band, we were straight edge. We were into positivity. We weren't into complaining. You know what we were really into? It's, you know, a lot of people complain about things that are out there. And that's what, what punk was all about. Complain about things that are out there and all the screwed up things that you see out there. But what we kind of realized at a young age and this became, you know, when I got into yoga, I think this kind of led me to yoga because this is one of the foundational principles of yoga is that it's not so much about what's out there. It's really about what's in here. And out there is just a manifestation of what the collective of what's in everybody's heart is. So if you're looking out into the world and there's crime and corruption and people are treating each other like crap, you really have to just take, you really have to check your own head and be like, what am I doing to contribute to that? And how can I like improve myself? And, you know, it's funny too, because I really learned this firsthand because youth of today, um, and I'm speaking of this with all humility, but it was like a phenomenon. Like, and, and I think it, w- it was a phenomenon in the fact that we kind of preached it, we kind of whatever preached it or taught it by example that um, it's really about personal change that makes a difference. And once you make personal change, you inspire so many people. Even, and you, you can even do it, you don't have to be in a band, you don't have to be, you know, have a huge podcast to do this. You could just be a regular everyday Joe. And if you're doing things to improve your own life, you could be at work and people would be like, wow, you know, this person's making all these changes and then they become inspired and they inspire other people and they inspire other people. That's how change really takes place. It's sort of like a ground, a grounds up movement for any kind of change. It's not about politics and electing this person, electing that person. It's, it's about people taking personal responsibility, radical personal responsibility for their own life. And then you can inspire and touch the hearts of so many people. So when we started this band, we really started it with that in mind that there's a lot of things that we don't like about the punk scene. You want to know something? Punk is about you get on stage and whatever in your heart, you speak it. And there was kind of like that freedom of expression. That was what punk was all about. So we figured we had a green light to do this stuff. But, (laughs) you know, here we are. First of all, punk rock is very small back then. So in punk rock, you have sort of a counter movement in punk rock. It's called straight edge where kids don't, didn't drink. They didn't do drugs. They were more positive minded. They were more introspective. So 
Straight Edge had started with a band. The idea started with this band called Minor Threat that came before us. Um, we didn't want to drink. We didn't, we didn't want to smoke. We were very inspired by Minor Threat. But at the time in the scene, Minor Threat had broken up. Straight Edge was considered something that was almost like very juvenile and like you outgrow it when you, you know, turn 18 or go to college or whatever. So it was dead. It was dead. And um, so when we first started the band and we were super loud and outspoken about it, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of backlash to the band. And I remember the first time we played CBGB's in New York, we got a show with this bigger band agnostic front that sort of took us under their wing. And uh, we were backstage and we were, you know, the, the, the symbol of straight edge meant you put a big X on your hands. Yeah. I saw that. And so that means that's like a loud, bold statement. I don't drink, I don't smoke. Um, so we were backstage. We we're all putting these big X's on our hands with, with magic markers. And the booking agent of CBGB's came up to us and he was like, what the hell do you think that you guys are doing? And we were like, hey, we're a straight edge man. We're about to go on stage. He was like, he's like, first of all, you're going to get eaten like wolves. He's like, New York City is a place of drugs and drinking and smoking. And if you guys think you're going to go out there and change anything, you're not going to change anything. You're going to get your asses kicked is what's going to happen. And we were just like, Shh, damn, man, like things could go very bad. <laughs> the crowd yeah. turns. You had seen TV. You could literally probably get knifed, or I don't know. You know. Yeah, yeah. It was a big chance. It was a big chance, and we sort of took. We sort of you know, took a big gulp, and we went on stage. And you know, Ray Capo is this very charismatic, you know, super energetic front man. And we went out there, and we actually did get a lot of get a lot of backlash from it. But we did get a lot of kids who were like, "Hey, man, what you were saying was really cool," and. Um, so there was sort of a very small kind of pocket of just kids that started in, in the New York scene that were very kind of into this whole thing. And then we had a record that came out called Break Down the Walls, which um, actually became like a really big record in the punk scene. And so we were able to go on tour. And, you know, when we first went on tour, we did a whole tour in the whole country First of all, that we booked ourselves. I mean, punk was so empowering. We're all a bunch of 18-year-old kids. We're booking our own tours. We're putting out our own records. We're doing our own, you know, graphic design, stuff and like that. And did you guys know, that I'm interested in this, and I know my listeners are interested in this. Did you know what you were doing at all? Or were you just like, we're going to get it done? Oh, graphic designs? Okay, let's sketch it out. Let's put it on. Oh, we need a t-shirt? Let's call this guy. Was it more like fly by the seat of your pants at that time? Or did you guys also have some actual, you know, people behind you that had any kind of, whether it was parents or whatever, any kind of knowledge of that marketing and, and, and all of the logistics, or was it just kind of figure it out as you go? We had absolutely no idea how to do anything. <laughs> there was no blueprint. There was no help. There was no internet. There was no Google. Um, I booked our very first tour when I was 18 and I didn't know what I was doing, but we were passionate about playing. No, you know, when you know, the great thing about punk is like when you're kind of spurned by the mainstream or ignored by the mainstream, then you got to do it yourself. And, um, 
So I just contacted all these booking. Uh, I contacted, you know, these people that were that were in bigger bands that would book themselves. And I just got a bunch of numbers of clubs. Uh, and so I had a list of clubs and I would just call them up and I would beg them to be put on a show. And a lot of times we didn't even have guarantees. A lot of times we didn't get paid or we get paid a hundred bucks or we get paid 50 bucks. We wouldn't even have enough money for gas money. And how far were you but, going to get to a place like that? Like where you had no guarantee? Was it like Philadelphia or was it uh, like right in New York that you were doing that? Like, would you, would you guys no, actually you would, get in the car, go somewhere and you could potentially show up and they're like, yeah, no, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It happened all the time. <laughs> You know, we were like Lewis and Clark, you know, we just kind of got in our van on a wing and a prayer. You'd hope there'd be a show and we would play anywhere and everywhere. We'd play at a person's house and play at a pizza place. And I tell you, it was fantastic. It was like being super empowered when you're 18 years old. And you realize that like, I don't need a big corporation behind me. I don't need, um, you know, I don't need, you know, I'll, I'll, I feel bad for a lot of kids, you know, these days that think like, I need to have this in place. And I need to have a record deal in place. And I need to, you know, for, for any kind of, ban- you know, for anything, you know, I, I need all sorts of corporate structure and things in place before I can actually move forward. That's not true. Uh, um, we used to have a, a saying back then, ready, fire, aim. it means you kind of learn your craft you learn what you're doing better to just get started and learn as you go and you know uh, and i found that to be very very empowering just get started just you know take whatever humble things you have at your disposal and get started and you know that's how we started we just got in a van and you know we booked our own tours and you know when we did that we 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 put out this album that actually kind of made a little mark in this kind of underground music scene. And so we would go on tour and it was the same thing. I mean, there was so many fights on that first tour. It was like drunken idiots throwing beer bottles at us, pouring beer over our head. Um, there was a lot of fights, a lot of riots. <laughs> I mean, I could go on and on and on about all the crazy stuff that happened back then. But there was also a lot of kids that the message sort of struck a chord in. And it was amazing because we kind of went on this whole um, U.S. tour and it was tough. It was like confrontation every night. And uh, it was a very polarizing thing in the punk scene. You know, and and I think this is true with anything because when someone comes up with, with a way of thinking that's maybe a little bit more progressive or a little bit more high vibrational or however you want to say it. It's almost like a mirror that gets put to your face and it's almost like, okay, what am I doing? Wow. You know, this person has such lofty ambitions. Like what am I doing in my life? You know, if you see a person that's like really into changing themselves for the better, it kind of puts this mirror on you. Like, wow, like what am I doing to change my life? And you know, People either go two ways. They either become very, very inspired or they become very, very pissed off because it sort of, um, it, it sort of tests, it, it sort of um, tests them or it's very, it's, it's almost like a critical of, of like, what am I doing with my life? Like I'm sitting around CBGB's, you know, snorting, right. snorting, you know, whatever it is in the bathroom. I mean, I'm doing, I'm doing math and, you know, 
uh, and these people are, are, are coming along and people are getting, are, are, you know, are, and people are getting inspired by like a higher calling. And so a lot of people would really hate us, you know, to the point of like wanting to beat the crap out of us. And then other people got really super inspired by it. And, you know, along the way around that time, we also got into vegetarianism. You know, I remember when I moved out of my parents' house and I moved to New York City. Now you got to cook for yourself. You know, I never cooked for myself and I never even sort of questioned what was on my plate. You know, I just sort of like whatever my parents cooked and there it was and I ate it and I didn't think too much about it. I didn't think too much about whether this was healthy or whether it wasn't healthy. And, but when I moved to New York city, um, one of the first jobs I got was at a health food store and, you know, all the people there, they were vegetarian, you know, they would teach me about principles of health and now you got to eat like this and, you know, this is unhealthy and you got to stop drinking soda. What are you crazy? You know, uh, I had no idea the soda was bad for me. I just drank soda. I was just a kid. (laughs) So being in New York city was really cool because now I'm getting all this new information that's kind of bouncing off at me and I'm trying out different diets and everything. So it was sort of, it it was sort of a part of the band's kind of um, mission statement, self-improvement. So we figured that this was also a very big part of our self-improvement, not only for health, but health is just, you know, health is just the, is just the reaction of it. Really. The big improvement is coming in improvement in your consciousness. It's like, now you don't look at a steak as something delicious to eat. Now you're looking at a state like this was actually a living being and it had just as much a right to live as I do. And it's been slaughtered behind the scenes in a very sort in, in a very inhumane and cruel way. That's like really kept hidden. And this whole sort of machinery that goes behind keep, you know, bringing this stake to me is really messed up. And you know, what's really cool. Another really cool thing that, that I learned from the bunk scene is this, you don't agree with something. Don't take part in it. Like that was a big part of the punk ethos is like, you don't agree with the way mainstream society is. Don't take part in it. You don't like the way that, you know, this whole kind of like preppy culture sort of cookie cutters people into how to dress. Don't dress that way. Dress outrageous, sort of be, uh, you know, you know, buck the system a little bit and have the courage to sort of, you know, not go along with the crowd and sort of, you know, if you don't believe in where the crowd's going, go in the other way. But this is one thing that I read about you guys that I really love to that point. You guys said that at a certain point you were going into places like CBGB's with like your varsity letter jacket on and you're like, people are looking at you like they want to kick your ass. But your point, and I love this, is, well, the punk scene is supposed to be anti everything and yet they're conforming to the punk you know, the punk look. So we're going to be our own version of it. Like, yes, we can say what we're going to say, but we're going to wear the, we're going to wear whatever's functional. And I relate to that because when my wife and I moved out to LA, we lived in Silver Lake and it's a, a little more artsy. And I remember thinking like, everybody has the same red streak in their hair. Like everybody's so, you know, it's kind of counterculture, but everybody looks the same in their difference. And I, I, you know, I, so when I read that about you guys, I was like, Oh, that, that's so great. Cause it's, it's actually really blasting through the stereotype of, yeah, we're not preppy, but we're also not this. We're just individuals. You want to know what's funny? 
when I got into the punk scene, here's punk, which is supposed to be this big alternative to mainstream culture. And I found that a lot of it reminded me of John Jay. It was a bunch of people getting stupid drunk every weekend, getting in fights, doing a lot of stupid stuff, making a lot of bad decisions. And even though they were doing it with mohawks and leather jackets, it reminded me the same of like what people were doing in my high school in Izod shirts and, you know, penny loafer shoes. So we were really fixed in, you know what, we're going to be a real alternative. Like if culture is not moving in a way that we see as progressive, we're just going to kind of like move in our own way. Even if the punk scene is, isn't moving in that way. We were, I just really had this conviction that, um, we're just kind of we're just kind of going to go in a way that feels feels right to us, and I tell you, a lot of people felt that way. I think it was I think it was a you know it was almost like youth today's the, the magic of youth today, and if you're kind of like not really into the punk scene or into or know a lot about this, it's sort of hard to understand what really happened. And it wasn't just youth today; it was you know it was other bands that we sort of you know banded together with. But there was a huge paradigm shift in the punk scene around that time. And I don't even think it was so much us. I just think it was almost like an idea whose time had come. Like, there was a lot of people that were like us that, that were attracted to this music for, for so many of the positive reasons. But there was just so much negativity in it that, you know, it was a, it was a big turnoff. So we just sort of had the confidence and, and you know, to just go out and start saying these things. A lot of people were like, yes, I feel exactly the same way. Yes. Um, I don't want to get drunk. I don't want to feel like I have to be pressured into like being cool and sitting at CBGs and snorting blue out of a bag. Uh, so it was weird. It was like a straight edge explosion yeah. in the hardcore scene. That, that's what I gathered from what I read is that it was a real zeitgeist. And, you know, when people are listening, I don't know that my listenership will know about the punk world. I really don't know much about it aside from like Sid and Nancy and, you know, some, some little, and, I, and that's not even exactly what you're doing, I don't think. But from reading about it, from within that scene, the way they speak about your band and your movement, it was an explosion. I mean, there were things where they were saying a lot of these bands were, you know, maybe touring in the city, maybe not even the five boroughs. And you guys were doing a U.S. tour and a European tour. I mean, it's it's one of these these cool things as I as I sat down to prepare to talk to you where I'm going. It, it's so cool to me that there are whole worlds and cultures that I just have really no clue about. And then I get to sit down with someone who's, who's in it. And I, and I'm, I just want to interject that I'm so appreciative that you are speaking freely and, and, and shining a light on things that I wouldn't even be able to ask you about, uh, because I wasn't in the scene, you know, I, it's like, I'm an outsider to the world that you were in. And yet I can, I could see so many parallels between what you did and and just 
what's happening in culture, even even the fact like that you were saying there was violence for standing up for good. Nowadays, that is translated into snarky behind the scenes, you know, social media, you know, haters that aren't physically fighting someone, but they're taking pot shots from the dark corners, you know, so it's it, nothing. Things change, but they don't change in some ways. And uh, bef- before I let you go on, I'm just curious about you talked about the transition from eating your parents' food to, you know, evolving kind of into vegetarian mindset. What was, what was the change? It sounds like you went into the city knowing like we're straight edge, but before that, when you were in high school, you were in the woods drinking with a keg, like where, was there a specific thing that stopped the drinking or was it just a gradual thing? Were you still drinking when you were graduated high school? Like, how did that transition happen? Uh, you know, I drank, I started drinking pretty early, like just, just how John Jay was, you know, I had an older brother. My older brother was, you know, three grades ahead of me. And, um, he just thought it was cool to bring me to parties and like, he'd have his little 12, 13 year old brother and they'd get me drunk and everybody would laugh. <laughs> and so, you know, I don't know what it was. I, you know, I kind of chalk it up to something like a past life thing. <laughs> I don't know if that's part of your paradigm, but you know, I think you learn lessons in life and, you know, according to like, you know, yoga, you even learn lessons from past lives and you bring that into your, into, into your present circumstance. And I think it was kind of something that I just had evolved past previously. It was just part of my consciousness. Like even when I would drink, I didn't really like it. I hated being hung over. I always thought this is stupid. Why am I doing this? I always felt peer pressured into it. <laughs> I always like, um, you know, I, I never really enjoyed it. And I thought it was like actually like poisonous, you know, waking up with like a, a hangover, like when you're 13. Yeah. You know, that's like, you know, a 13 year old's body and their mind, their brain. I mean, it's, it's such a, you know, you're still growing and to just like really kind of pound that with, with poison is such a terrible thing. And so I was really not into it. And I tell you, you know, music is such a powerful thing. Um, when I, when I heard, first heard that band minor threat and they had this song called straight edge and the lyrics were, I'm a person just like you, but I've got better things to do to sit around and fuck my head, hang out with the living dead, snort white shit up my nose, pass out at the shows. I read that and I was like, Oh my God, that's exactly how I feel. You know, music is so powerful in that way that somebody can express something that rings true in your heart and they express it even better than you could even express it yourself. And so I heard that song and it also makes you feel like you're part of a tribe, you know, because we're all searching for acceptance. Nobody is like an Island to themselves. You always have to feel like there's other people around you to encourage you, you know, and and be with you and, and, and have common ideas with. So when I heard that song, not only did it strike a chord in, with, uh, in me, but I also felt like, wow, there's other people out there that feel, like, I'm not alone in this. There's other people out there that feel exactly like I did. And it sort of gave me the wherewithal to just go to a party and just be like, hey man, I'm not drinking anymore. And believe me, 
I was sort of, I was like one of the Mr. Cools in school. And so for me to go to a party and be like, yeah, I'm not going to drink. You know, the, the Travis Wrights of the world are like, you know, they, they're all great guys, but they were like, what? Are you a fucking loser? <laughs> it was so social. It was like social suicide to stop drinking in John Jay, especially since I had this reputation as being a party guy. My brother was a big party guy. I was on the football team. That's what we did. And it took a lot of guts and it sort of like alienated me a little bit from that, from that peer group that I was part of. I was on our website recently looking at the show description I wrote before I even launched this podcast. And one of the things I wrote was, I've learned that the people you think have got it made put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you and me. And I think that still holds true after all of these interviews. The thing I didn't say back then was, they also poop just like you and me. Now, it may sound crass to talk about poop on a podcast, but it can be a real problem for marriages, relationships with your kids, a new budding romance. Just like my guests, everything is going well. You're progressing so nicely in the household or in the relationship. And then, boom, you hit the bathroom, the odor hits the house, and you go back about five or six steps. Really not good. What are you going to do? Might I suggest poopery? All you got to do, spray the bowl before you go. A layer of essential oils traps bathroom odor before it begins. Such a simple concept, and it works. They guarantee it. But honestly, you can ask my wife and kids. There's a very good chance I would not be allowed back in my house if it were not for poopery. But here's how you benefit because they're supporting our podcast. Just because you're part of the 10,000 Nose Tribe, next time you have an order of $25 or more from poopery.com, you get 15% off if you use the code DELNEGRO15 at checkout. That's DELNEGRO15. Poopery will change your life. Honestly, try it. You will truly be able to say, my poop doesn't stink. I mean, I, I absolutely... Love that. Take my hat off to you. I think it is the coolest thing. And there's a reason when people say, oh, I want to be like so-and-so, you know, I always say like, yeah, you want to be that, you know, you might want the headline that so-and-so got, but are you willing to do what so-and-so did to get that headline? And that's what you did. You put, you guys, it sounds like just like put yourselves on the line night after night, month after month, year after year. And you, you had a huge impact, a huge impact. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, man, I'm reading about you and I'm just like, this is insane. Like what this one particular article, which I will put a link to it in the show notes. Cause I want people to be able to, I want people that hear you to have context for what you did, because it's a subculture. It's like, it's not like I'm, it's not like you're, you know, Jay-Z where people are hearing your name all the time. But when you read this, you, I mean, you guys were very, very influential in this sphere. And it's, it's really cool to, to hear how you got there and kind of how, in a, in a weird way, how simple your approach was, but it's just like bare bones, like fundamentals, like listen to your heart and act on it. Boom. Well, I tell you, punk was great training for that. And I really felt like that was one of the things that has really helped me 
kind of find myself and follow my own path in my own life, not being so concerned about public opinion, being a little bit aloof to public opinion and not really requiring external validation for doing something that you feel is, is right. And really, you know, the training for that came where you would ju- you just kind of like had the guts even to just dress in, in weird clothes and wear weird clothes to like and have like a weird haircut in school. I remember I was the first I was the first male in John Jay to have an earring. And let me tell you, that day that I pierced my ear and I came into high school, well, like people can't even understand it now. I mean, you know, earrings on guys, it's just like it's so common. Right. Even for me to ride a skateboard, you know, even skateboarding back then was so underground. Skateboarding, when I started skateboarding in the early 80s, it was like something that like eight-year-olds did. You know, I was kind of like in that whole beginning underground kind of skate culture. And so I had one of those big skateboards. I would skateboard around the parking lot. And people would just be like, what are you doing? You're on a skateboard? Like, what are you, 10? Like, they didn't understand (laughs) what was to come, that skating was going to become this whole kind of like big, cool thing. Um, so it, it did, it did give me a certain, um, confidence to just go my own way. And I tell you, it really became one of the biggest things that I did that changed my life is that, you know, I came from Westchester. Westchester is a very affluent place. We lived in the suburbs, had a big house, huge backyard. My dad made a lot of money. You know, we always had nice cars. So you know, my dad was a businessman. And so of course he wants me to go to college. You know, he wants me to you know, study business. He's like, I got a lot of contacts in the business world. I can get you a really high paying job, you know, big house, big cars, you know, this, um, you know, and whatever. He was just a you know, loving father. He just wanted the best for me. He couldn't wrap his head around that. I was so into this crazy music where people would jump off the stage and he just thought it was just nonsense. And the fact that I was going to like dedicate myself to this crazy nonsensical music to him and not go to college and take this practical path of, of economic development was just so outside of his paradigm. He just couldn't wrap his head around it. So he really pressured me to go to college. He pressured me to just forget this music stuff, put it aside, you know, and, and go to business school. And, um, there was a couple of things that led me to not doing that. And one of the things was, is that I could see if I really took a really hard look at my dad's life, he was sort of the, you know, he was sort of the success story. He had a great job. He made a lot of money. He had a big house in the suburbs. Um, I could see he wasn't happy. I could see that that kind of, um, I call it linear um, advancement, meaning advancement on like a material plane. Real, real advancement or real happiness comes from um, upward mobility, mobility and consciousness, like, you know, increasing your kindness, your compassion, your selflessness, your, your desire to serve other people, your contribution. Those are the things that really translate into fulfillment and happiness of the heart, not economic development. That's like one of the biggest lies that have been, told to us since time immemorial that if you get the strength, the power, the wealth, the fame, the beauty, you're going to be happy. 
It's just not true. <laughs> yeah. And so I could say that, you know, he was in a lot of anxiety, he had a lot of problems, his money, his lifestyle, his house, his wealth, his cars, they weren't making him help. They weren't making him happy. And so um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be that way. And then also kind of, you know, just from being from the punk scene, it gave me sort of a thing where I didn't, I didn't really, uh, you know, what he wanted for me in his life didn't trump what I wanted for him for myself in my life. And I tell you, one of the hardest things that I ever had to do was um, tell my dad that I wasn't going to college, that I spent all my money that I worked at a, I worked at a summer job and he thought I was saving for college. I took all that money and I bought a, guitar and an amplifier <laughs> and that I was moving to New York city to move into with Ray Capo. He, 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 he didn't hate Ray Capo, but he had this thing that Ray Capo was bringing me down. He used to call Ray Capo a drifter. You're hanging out with that drifter, Ray Capo. Nothing's good. is going to come good. It's going to come of it. And so I remember I went into his room. I, I can remember this like it was yesterday. That's how traumatic it was for me, <laughs> but he was in his room. And he was on his bed and he was reading the newspaper and I went in and I was, and I was just like, Hey dad, I just want to tell you something. I'm not going to college. I, you know, I applied to college. I had, you know, gotten into college and I was like, I'm not going to college. I made the decision that I'm really into doing this band. I'm really into doing this music. I think it's important. Uh, we're having a lot of success with it. I know maybe you can't see that, but it's, going to business school and becoming a businessman is not what I want is what I want for my life. And I'm just moving to New York city and I'm just going to try to follow this dream that I have of, of playing music. And, and I remember he didn't say anything. He didn't even look down from his paper. He just had the paper like this. He didn't even like look to see if he was suffering. He just says, John, I just can't tell you how disappointed I am in you. And then it was just like, what can I do, man? <laughs> I gotta follow my heart. And I just left and I moved and I moved to New York city and it worked out for me. <laughs> wow. First of all, thank you for telling that. Cause that's so, I, I, I got to imagine that's going to inspire someone who's going to, someone who's going to hear that. And I guess the, the follow-up, the, the kind of the, the devil's advocate, because I want to make sure that if anybody's listening, that I want, I want to get this question out. So you come from a lot of money. Let's say there's someone listening and they're going, oh, yeah, well, sure, he did it. But like he knew push comes to shove. He knows like if it doesn't work out, he's got the backing of his dad who he's saying he doesn't want to be like, but he's got that. How much, if if at all... How much did that weigh into your thinking? Were you like, you know, financially, were you totally on your own? I'm imagining with his reaction like that, that he was like, okay, cool. Cut your cut off financially, but I'm sure he, he would support. Like, like, how much did that weigh into your thinking? Was it even in your brain consciously or, and did you know other people that were pursuing music that didn't have the same means? And did you see that, like, 
they couldn't be as bold because they were worried if it doesn't work out for me, I'm really on the street. It was, it was, it wasn't even an idea in my mind that I was going to take a penny from my dad because we sort of left on really bad terms. I mean, you can imagine the day that I moved out, I was, I was literally moving my stuff out. We had, you know, we had a van, the band had a van. I was putting my stuff in the van uh, to drive to New York city. And my dad looked at me and he said, you're going to be back in a month begging to come back into this house. And as soon as he said that, I welled up with such a fierce determination that I was going to make it on my own that I just, like he said that and something snapped in my mind that I'm never going to ask him for a penny. And I, whatever it takes for me to move to New York City in this dangerous neighborhood and kind of make it on my own, I am going to freaking do it. Like just words like out of his mouth just really kind of sparked like, some fire in me to uh, you know, just make it on my own and set out on my own and kind of, and, and do it. And, and let me tell you, if you want to make a lot of money, you don't be in a, in a punk band. In <laughs> you know what I mean? There was a lot of times where we never stayed in hotels. Hotels were just out of the question. We didn't have money for hotels. We would basically play a show and then we would get on the mic and be like, Hey, does anybody have a floor we can sleep on? And it's funny because those people that we slept on their floors, you know, back when I was like 19 years old, a lot of them are like really good friends of me, really good friends of mine to this day. That was almost like part of the glory of this whole thing. It's like we went across the country. I saw every major city in America and in Europe. We met people. We, you know, we went to their houses. We, you know, they, they fed us and they cooked for us and, and they showed us so much kindness and generosity we made so many friends. I mean, even to this day, I can practically go into any major city in America, in Europe, sometimes even in South America. And I have friends that I can just stay with. You know, there's, there's a certain bond that comes from that when, you know, people look after you. <laughs> and there's a lot of gratitude that comes with that. that that's, that's another great point that you're bringing up, for, particularly for people that I think listen to this show, is that like there are you know, I'll, I'll say this all the time, you know, there are other means of measuring wealth besides money, many other means. And if if you are listening and you're a performer, whether you're a musician or you're an actor, or you're a poet, you're whatever, there, there are other, there are other things that, you know, it's it just, it's when someone lays themselves out on the line like that, like you guys obviously did. People, they want to take care of you. And that's, and that's kind of your, your wealth is not measured only in what you have in the bank account. It's measured in experience. It's measured in how much love you have around you. It's measured in, you know, people coming up to you. I'm sure to this day, still people come up to you or email you or whatever and say, Hey, thank you for, you know, I saw your show back then and whatever it was that, that, that you inspired them in some way. And maybe they've gone off in there in something totally different than you. They're not even a musician. They're not, you know, that's the, that's the beauty of it that I want people to hear is like, it doesn't have to be so, you know, a plus B equals C. It just, it just doesn't have to be that way. It's kind of you're you're creating this your own unique little masterpiece. And that's that happens to be your life. And it's different for all of us. 
And, you know, the funny part about it is that eventually, you know, I was in a band called Shelter and we were on a big label and, you know, we, we did this one record that was called Mantra and it actually became like a, a big record. Like we had a song video that was on MTV. Um, you know, we sold hundreds of thousands of records, you know, and for, as a musician for the first time in my life, like before we were on that bigger label and I was doing music, we were like starving musicians, you know, basically. And then we put out this record and the record got really popular. We started touring all around the world. And I started making over a hundred thousand dollars a year doing music. It was almost like a dream come true. But I tell you, you know, even looking back at those times when I was making a lot of money doing music, you know, as soon as you start making money, there's the band started fighting with each other, you know, Hey, I wrote this song. I deserve this amount of money. And I wrote this song. I wrote that, you know, you know, it really sort of, I'm not saying that money is, is bad because it's not money is actually an energy that can be used for wonderful, wonderful things. I'm not, I'm not one of those people that, you know, money is evil, you know, um, put yourself into poverty. You know, anybody that has money is a, you know, is a, um, you know, uh, screw in the machine, (laughs) but, um, it does complicate things. It does, you know, it, it does complicate things. And I often look back at the times that we were making no money and sleeping on people's floors. And there was kind of like a real, just, you know, purity in the drive for, you know, just, we were like a band on a mission, and there was something really great about that and really free about that. And we weren't so concerned about money and we weren't so concerned about um, living like a quote unquote comfortable lifestyle and, you know, having a nice apartment or whatever. You know, we lived out of, and I put all my stuff in, a, all my stuff filled in, a, you know, fit in a, a milk crate that I would take on tour with me. And, you know, we just, you know, traveled nonstop. And it was something like really wonderful about that. Just being young, you know, when you're 20 years old, you don't, you know, I think it's a really great time a really great season in your life where you don't have a lot of responsibilities where you don't have like a house and a family to take care of. You know, now I you know, have kids and I can't live like that anymore. So it was a really great time when you're sort of young and unencumbered to just sort of go for it and just sort of, you know, uh, live your, you know, live your dream, so to speak. And it was really, it was, it was really a wonderful time. Yeah. I have, um, I have a, yeah. Similar, similar feeling to, you know, early years. And it's all different. It's always different. Um, you know, each stage has its own merits, but I agree. And, you know, that reminds me of like Simon Sinek, who's, you know, talks about start with why, and he goes through all of these huge companies that, that where the culture, where they've been able to, you know, transpose their success from one, one lane to another, like, you know, Apple or Harley Davidson or these kinds of companies that started with a real why. And the early days, I've even had people on this show that coach, you, you know, a bunch of, you know, either lawyers or whatever. They said they're entrepreneurs all have this nostalgia from the early days because that's when they were so hungry and going after that purpose. And then as they got bigger, they started to have to manage people and it was like a different job and they didn't like it as much as that, that early days that the striving, um, I got a, a couple of, I want, I want to ask you a little bit about your current clothing line, which I still think is, I think is still current. I'm not sure. Right. Yeah. It is. Okay. Not, our, 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 uh, silk screener is down for the count during the coronavirus. So they're um, closed. So we haven't been able to do any new shirts in like 
couple of months. Oh, but yeah, I saw so, some. I saw some that you had about washing your hands. It's actually I saw some on your on the Instagram feed for the the company that made me think that it was still um, like some current stuff. But but my my question before we even get there into the yoga uh, is with your dad. One, I'm wondering if he's still if he's still alive, and also if you guys ever kind of uh, did you guys ever come around to each other or no? Uh, how did that play itself out? Super interesting about my dad. You know, my dad's, my dad's uh, parents, my grandparents, they came from Italy. Same and, with mine. Um, you know, they came on the boat, you know, they, they misspelled Purcelli, you know, Purcelli is spelled P-O-R-C-E-L-L-Y. And so it used to be spelled P-U-R-C-E-L-L-I, but you know, they got to Ellis Island or whatever, they misspelled it in their paperwork when they came in. So they spelled it with a Y, um, you know, so they were really like off the boat Italians. And my grandfather worked three jobs. He put himself through college. He put my grandmother through college. They both became pharmacists. He opened his own pharmacy. He, he was like, my grandfather was a real story of just like, you know, you roll up your sleeves and you work as hard as you can. And, you know, you'll be able to make it, you know, from that. And, you know, you know, from that, you know, he actually owned a very successful business. And, you know, so my father kind of, you know, grew up with that sort of old school Italian framework that he sort of, you know, worked with, you know, everything was about, you know, making money, making something to yourself and working hard and rolling up your sleeves and very conventional sort of older Italian guy. So when I got into things like music and punk, I mean, he just couldn't, he, it just couldn't fit into his paradigm. You know, I almost felt bad for him because he like, he didn't, he couldn't even wrap his head around me being straight edge. I remember when I turned 18, when, when I was eight, when I was 18, the drinking age was 18. It wasn't 21. It was before I got jacked up to 21. So when I turned 18, I had already been straight edge for Two years. I was in this band. Youth Today had started. The whole point of the band was practically straight edge. I would come home with X's on my hands, you know? Yeah. So he knew that I was straight edge and I was into this. And I turned on my 18th birthday, he came home from work. He went to the refrigerator. He took two beers out of the refrigerator. He opened them up. He sat down. He put one in front of him. He put one in front of me. He said, John, you're 18 now. Have a beer with your old man. And I just kind of looked at him like, Dad, are you even paying attention to my life? Like, I don't drink. He's like, oh, I know that stuff at the band, but come on, you're 18. Like, you know, just have a drink with your old man. And I, I was just like, I almost felt bad for him. Like, he just couldn't wrap his head around where I was. And when I said, Dad, I'm not going to have a beer with you. Like, he was, I could just see it in his eyes. Like, he was just so disappointed. Like, that was kind of like a rite of passage for him. Like, something that he was going to share with his son. Like, his son reached a drinking age. He was an adult, and he was going to share this ritual of having a beer with him. His dad probably did it to him. And I, 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 I kind of felt for him because his paradigm just didn't fit with my paradigm. And it was very, very frustrating for him. And I could see that. And so when I went off and I became a punk rocker and I, you know, uh, and, you know, I didn't go to college, he was actually really furious with me. And um, we became estranged for a long time. And I don't know if you, you know, you know, part of my story is that when I became like 25 after Youth Today, you know, after Youth Today stopped, 
I actually moved into an ashram. I got way into yoga. I got way into meditation. um, I got way into Eastern spirituality. I think that all kind of like straight edge sort of set the foundation for me later on to life. You know, I got way into yoga, specifically bhakti yoga. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because it's, it's really kind of interesting how I got into punk. It wasn't mainstream at all. I was sort of ostracized for it. And then like, whatever, 30 years, it's, it's, it's cool to be punk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. When I first got into yoga, yoga was such yoga and meditation. I mean, these things were so bizarre and they were almost like culty that they weren't part of the mainstream consciousness. Now, like yoga's cool. Everybody's got a yoga mat, you know, meditation's cool. You know, some of these big um, motivational speakers are always telling people about the, you know, the benefits of meditation. Back then it was not like that. Like if you bought a a set of beads and you spent like, you know, your mornings meditating, you were a freak. freak. So you can imagine like, first I hit my dad with the whole punk rocker thing. Then I move into an ashram and I'm sort of like living almost like a monk, you know, you know, studying, you know, Vedic literature from ancient India. I'm chanting, I'm meditating. Like the ashram that I moved into was actually a cow protection farm in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. I seriously, I needed a psychic detox. Like I had just been living this punk rocker lifestyle for so long and touring in bands, staying up all night. And, you know, there's a lot of fights, a lot of violence, you know, just the music itself is very, very intense. And when I started getting into yoga, you know, I understood that there's a benefit to just kind of like slowing down and slowing your mind down. And, you know, trying to connect with, you know, something that's greater than yourself, whether you call it God or a higher power or your source or um, it was sort of like I got I I was never really into religion, but I got into spirituality. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. Totally. So I was trying to kind of really explore this. And you got to understand the type of person that I am. I'm not the type of person that goes to the pool and sticks their toe into the shallow end and sort of like wades in i'm the type of person that goes to the deep end and dives in that's just the type of person i am so like i got interested in in yoga and eastern spirituality whatever i'm moving into an ashram like i really want to live the life and you can you you can can you imagine now here's my italian dad and now i'm living in an ashram you know what i mean like he's just he can't figure me out and he's pissed off about it (laughs) (laughs) So, um, we were really, we were estranged for like a really, really long time. And even, um, you know, I would see him and we just couldn't, we just couldn't connect. There was always that disconnect of what he expected from me and how my life went. And there was always that, there was always that rub. And, um, you know, and and it's just, it's hard to keep in in contact with family literally when you're touring year round for like a decade, like literally we went nonstop. We would just, you know, tour and tour and tour and tour. So, um, we became very estranged. And then, um, my dad, just a few years ago, he got really sick. He, he, he spent a year in the hospital having like heart attack after heart attack, after stroke, after stroke. And, um, you know, the funny thing is the doctors told him, you got to stop eating meat. <laughs> and he would even joke with me like, yeah, John, the doctors are telling me what you've been telling me for years. I got to stop eating meat. (laughs) Um, 
but he got really sick. He got really sick for a whole, he spent basically like a whole year in the hospital. And then he was in Florida. He was living in Florida at this time. He was retired. And so the doctor had one, his doctor called me up one day and he said, your dad's vital signs are dropping. If you ever want to talk to him again, you better get on the next flight down here. He called my brother and he called my sister. So we all just kind of um, flew down there just on a you know moment's notice. And my sister and my brother had gotten there earlier than me. And it was the weirdest thing because, you know, my dad had been in the hospital and he's sort of going in and out of consciousness. Like he was very like, um, he wasn't very lucid. You know, he was mostly just like sleeping or almost like comatose. He wasn't responding to people talking to him, you know, but the day that I got there somehow or other, he snapped out of it. It was the weirdest. It was almost like a very, very strange mystical coincidence that the day that I got there and especially when I got there, you know, my brother and my sister who had been there, you know, for a few hours previously, they said, wow, when you got there, like he really kind of like, you know, came to life and like his mental faculty kind of came back to him. He was very clear minded and his doctors couldn't believe it because it was like the first time in months that he actually had been like responsive enough to have an actual conversation. And so I walked in and he kind of perked up and he saw me. And he was like, John, you know, come, come here, come here. You can imagine he's on his deathbed. So this is like a real, you know, you know, dramatic scene that's going on. And so he, uh, he just started right in. You know, I didn't even say anything. He just started right in with me, in on me. He's, he said, you know, John, when you first got into that whole music, that, that whole music thing, I thought you were throwing your life away and I was just so furious and so disappointed in you. And he said, and then when you did your whole Krishna thing, um, you know, I, I thought that, you know, you had just lost your mind <laughs> and he said, but you know what? He said, now I go on the internet and I Google your name. And so many nice things come up about you. And people say so many nice things about you and your music and your band and how they inspired you. And I just wanted to tell you how proud I am of you. And it was like, whoa, whoa. It was a really big moment for me. It was almost like it was some closure there for sure that somehow or other on his deathbed, my dad had somehow, you know, I always think that there's some sort of subconscious thing where you want to please your father, no matter who your father is, you know, what kind of jerk he is or like whatever. I think it's just kind of like built into the human nature that you kind of want to do something that you want to please your father, you know? Yeah. So I really felt like, you know, I had, after a lifetime of displeasing him, I felt like he finally had seen, had, had seen that there was some merit into what I was, into what I was doing. And, you know, one of the things that really drove a wedge between me and my father is that when the, when that band shelter that I was in got really big, we did a whole U S tour with that band. No doubt. Remember, remember yeah. no doubt. Yeah. I actually met that a friend of mine is friends with, I think they're the guitarist or the drummer or something. Uh, I uh -huh. can't remember the name, but yeah. I so um, somehow or other the bass player, who comes from a Brahmin family. His name's Tony Canal. He's an Indian, uh, you know, of Indian descent. 
And so shelter was very influenced by Indian culture and Vedic culture and yoga. And so we had played a festival show with them in Europe. And I was at our merch table and we used to sell, I mean, we're at like punk shows and, and our merch table would have not only t-shirts and stuff of the bands, but we would sell like the Bhagavad Gita. We would sell neck beads from India. We would sell yoga pants. <laughs> we would sell like all this stuff, just incense, just all kinds of stuff that inspired us. We thought it would be cool just to put it at the, at the merch table. So our merch table was a, like a whole cultural experience. And so the bass player for No Doubt came up to me at the merch table and he said, I'll take one of everything. And believe me, we had like 50 things. Yeah. And so I said, I said, yeah, you're in that band, No Doubt. And he's like, you know, this is so cool because when I grew, I grew up in a Brahmin family and we grew up with like chanting and mantras and meditation and chanting on beads. And, you know, your whole band is just fascinating to me. <laughs> and so he brought us on a whole entire U.S. tour with No Doubt. At the time, this was like, you know, this was like mid to late 90s when No Doubt is the biggest band in the world. Yeah. You know, I don't know if like you remember the time. When, yeah, like, you no, know, they were huge. Yeah. Songs. They were, we were playing arenas every night. Wow. And it was incredible. So my dad, who had never once came to see me play, ever, you know, he would just make a statement not to come see me play at any show I had ever played. Um, we played a show in New Jersey, uh, um, and he came to the show. And he came backstage, and he met Gwen Stefani, and he met all the people from the band. And, you know, it's like this huge show. We're playing this arena, and he's watching from the backstage. You know, whatever. There's, you know, so many thousands of people there. And then I came backstage after the show, and my dad said, you know, son, I'm finally proud of you. I'm finally proud of you. And when he said that, I was so pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> I was like... Now that there's actually some material success behind it, now you're kind of proud of me. But like, I was very, very proud of stuff that I did when we were, you know, playing to a hundred people at a pizza place. You know, I was, I was proud of that. I was proud of like this message that we were putting out. And I was proud of like, you know, if, if a few people got inspired to be straight edge or be vegetarian or to lead a more positive life. To me, that was a big success. Yeah. And it kind of really pissed me off that he could just couldn't see that. And now that there's like material accolades to it, now he recognizes it. Yeah. It's, it has nothing to do with the, with the um, message behind the bands. He, he couldn't care less about it. He thinks that's weird. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, just that we're that our, it's just that you were accepted, you know, you by know, society. Were, yeah. yeah. That we were playing a big arena with this big band that had songs on the radio yeah. You know, well, that's, just, yeah. And I can relate to that. You know, the small version of that is like when I first was in New York and I was bartending and, you know, I would, I did so many, you know, plays, some of which were good and, and some of which were terrible in black box theaters for no money. And I would take a pay cut from my bartending gig to go do the play. And, and, you know, I, I actually felt very lucky. I had a family around that was super supportive and, and friends that were, you know, more like working on Wall Street, but would be supportive. I was kind of like the token, like, you know, guy that went the random way, you know, uh -huh. but, but there was something that I could relate to in that story, which was, or 
like a couple of years in, I got this like a head and shoulders commercial and it played all the time and I actually made some money off of it. And people's reaction to that, they're like, oh, you're, you're on a head and shoulders commercial. Awesome, man. You do it. And, and I remember having that same feeling of like, like. F you. Like, what about the play I just did? Like, the play I did was, like, actual acting. This was like, I won a lottery ticket, and it's on TV. And so maybe it feels like it's, again, like it's accepted or something, or, or oh, you're making money from it. It's like, now you're a real actor. I'm like, well, no, that's not acting compared to what I'm doing in the black box theater. But that's how – and I would, you know, like, let it go, and you realize that people are just are, – People are just reacting from wherever they are, and so there's really no judgment on it. But I, I, I completely, uh, you know, just identify with that of like the things that I care about versus the things that other people care about. I mean, even this conversation, like there, if this was two years ago. I would have been way more nervous in sitting down with you because I would have been like, oh, I don't really know this guy. I don't know his world. I have to do all this research. And I'm like, now I'm just like, I don't really care. We're going to get to his resume. We're going to miss huge chunks of this guy's life. Look how much he's done. Like, I'm just not going to get to it in an hour or whatever it is. But I don't care. What I care about is the guy underneath it that like that produced all that stuff. The stuff is like the backdrop. Uh, to me, it's really awesome, and and my hat's off to you. But I, what what gets me going is having this conversation and going like, man, this is what this this is how this guy saw the world, and that's what the result, the end result, happened to be good for him. And for every thousand of him, there's someone else who had those intentions, and it didn't work out that way. But it doesn't make their story less, you know. It doesn't make their story less. It's that they're still going for it. That the, the going for it is kind of what what I love. And and so when someone responds, and I, I I would like to ask you, you're you know, it sounds like the same thing. When someone responds to your work, when they really have something specific to say, it's it's like water in the desert. And when they say something that's more like, you know about a project or about it, like it, it, like it, you could be a piece of cardboard. It doesn't matter. It's more about the, you know, it, it, it's just, it's such a different feeling to get, you know? Yeah. yeah Sorry, I went on a real, I went on a real yeah. tangent there. Sorry. No, it's cool. It's cool because, you know, I wasn't, I don't really know a lot about you. Oh, so there's kind there's of- not as much to know, I don't think, as there is about you, as I, I'm, I'm finding you fascinating, but I feel like you're a kindred spirit in the fact that you're an artist, you're an actor. That's what really motivates you and wakes you up in the morning feeling excited. And I think a lot of people have that kind of passion, but they don't follow it. And they end up working a job that they don't really like, that they're not really fulfilled at. They may make more money at that, but their heart's in, an, in another place and they just really don't they really don't, you know, follow their, their dream or whatever, or their passion or what, or, you know, what they're excited about. And it's funny because there's a, there's a, there was a book that was written by uh, a woman who would work with dying people. And she, her whole life, she started when she was 20 years old and she would, you know, she was a caretaker for people that were on their deathbed basically. 
And so when she was older, when she was like, you know, 65 or whatever, she wrote a book and here she has like 45 years of experience of being with people that are on their deathbed and conversing with these people. And you want to know what she said? The number one regret was, is that people felt like they didn't follow their heart and they didn't follow their path. And they just kind of fell into a job that wasn't satisfying to them. And they did it their whole entire life. And now here they are on, the, on their deathbed. You know, I never really pursued what was really important to me, what I really felt passionate about. It's such a crime. I hope, there's, I, I hope there's even one person out there, you know, that hears this and resonates with that and, and kind of has the, it gives them the confidence to sort of just go out there and just do it. Even if it's not going to make any material sense, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But, you know, ha having kind of um, material accolades, it doesn't really mean much. When you're on your deathbed, you're not thinking about what kind of car you drove. You're not thinking about how much money you have in your bank account. You're reflecting on your life and you're thinking, what did I do of substance with my life? Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to be that guy on the, on his deathbed, you know, regretting the way he lit, he lived his whole entire life. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, you know, I, I think there were probably a lot of other paths I could have taken that would have been. I know it. I mean, it would have been financially like, but just much more. I would have. I could have had a much more stable existence up until now. Um, but I really do wake up going like, it's pretty. It's pretty cool to be able to do what you want to do. I mean, even like, I I'm so fired up about this podcast, and the podcast really started. What's interesting about it is. I was a guy who was, quote, do, you know, following his dream. But when the time that I created this thing, that had become, I had become a shell of myself within being an actor. Like I was doing jobs that were, uh, you know, some of were, were, some of them I was really into, some of them I wasn't. But it was like, I kind of, I became, it was like, I may as well have been going doing some like job where I was punching a, a, a time card. Cause that's the, I, I got crushed. My spirit got crushed. And luckily I had like a second version of like, it wasn't as dramatic, but of that like kind of midlife crisis that I had that turned me from, you know, I had played lacrosse in college uh, and I, I quit and went out for a play. Like that's, that all came from like a breakup in college. Like I had this whole thing in Italy and it was this whole, it just came out of me. And then the podcast was like a, a less dramatic version of that, but it's really pumped life into me. Like this, this has been the, the, one of the best things for my soul that I've done. And it's like my side gig and, and it's, but having these conversations and, and that's another thing I'd like to stress to listeners that are you know, particularly young actors that are listening, you know, any artist or, or anyone, I guess, is like the follow the thing that gets you alive. It will. And if you're an artist, that will infuse itself into your art. I think it's no coincidence. My, my career in the last three years is, for in my opinion, better than it's ever been. And I think it's not a coincidence that that 
overlaps with when this podcast has happened. Because I've sat down with people like yourself that I'm like, you know, I read a lot of books about people. I read a lot of, you know, I, I you can get inspired that way. But when you sit down with someone and, you know, now because of COVID, we're not in, in the same room with each other, but you're sitting down with someone and you're like, this dude is flesh and blood right in front of me going, I did this, 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 and this, and here I am. And, and I listen to you and I go, well, shit, I'm going to do that too. You know, it's like, and, and I've had, you know, a hundred and something conversations like that. And they've all just reaffirmed what I knew, what I was acting on. Maybe I wasn't acting on strong enough. I hear you and I think you're a more bold version of what, you know, we went to the same high school. I think you came out like out of a cannon. I'm bold in my way, but I think I was slightly, you know, within the artist's realm, I've had a, I think a, a slightly more conventional version of it than you. But regardless, I do, I feel alive and I'm so grateful for it, even though it's been rough. I mean, there have been many, many rough days, years, weeks, months, whatever, you know? Okay, a couple of, uh, I really liked what you said. And a couple of points with that is going back to like um, my first point is that, you know, with Youth of Today, especially when we did that band, it wasn't just music. It was almost like musical activism. You know what I mean? It was uh, it was a lot of trying to introduce things that had inspired us. And it wasn't just it, it was things that we had incorporated into our lives and gotten an incredibly positive result. And it's funny, you know, I think when you live something, it gives you, you know, in yoga, there's that term shakti. It gives you like the power or the intensity or the, you know, the tools where you can give that to, give that to other people. So I think we were just so genu genuinely enthusiastic about positive living, about straight edge, about vegetarianism. That And just that natural enthusiasm, we just kind of went out and we told people about it. And I tell you, for all the kids, anybody that's like a younger kid out there that's listening to this, I get it. Like sometimes you look out at the world and you just think the world is so friggin' messed up. What can I do to make any sort of dent in this whole screwed up world? And it's I'm like living proof that you can make a huge dent <laughs> because we practically toppled a punk scene with positive living. <laughs> like I, I can't even, I can't even tell you what it was like. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of kids became straight edge. Thousands of kids became vegetarian. Um, you know, thousands of kids became inspired to live their lives in, in you know, in a positive way and you know, chuck the complaining to, you know, to self empower themselves to change their cells before they change the world. It was like somebody lit a fire and the whole freaking forest burned down. And that, that can happen. Like if you're young and you're passionate, you you know, a lot of the, what empowers you to do that is like, you look out at the world and you see things that are messed up in the world. And you're just like, you know what? I'm not going to take part. I'm going to live a different way. And when you do that, it empowers you to inspire other people. And when you get these pockets of people that inspire others, 
man, change just like takes, takes off like wildfire. It's incredible to see. I walk around with my kids. I have, you know, now I have two kids. I have two teenagers. My son's 19 and my daughter's 16. Anywhere we go, there's always one, you know, kid with like a, you know, you can kind of tell that they're like a little hardcore, like they got vans on and, you know, they got like some hardcore t-shirt and a hoodie. You know, you can see them a mile away and they're always coming up to me. Oh my God, your band inspired me so much. I can't believe it. You know, I'm straight edge this day. And it really makes me feel good. And it makes me, it, I feel good that my kids see that. Yeah. Because I want them to feel like they're empowered, that they can do something to change the world in a positive way. And when you do that, your life has purpose. Your life has meaning. John, thank you. Really, thank you so much. So nice to meet you. And I'm, I'm really, really, really inspired by this, the whole conversation. It's awesome. Thanks for having me on. It was fantastic. What we do here is go back, 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 back. All right. Full disclosure, I know this was a long one, but there was even a little more in there that we trimmed slightly. We missed so much of John's next lives, but someday I'll have him back in for part two. Uh, I'd love to hear your feedback, so please write in if anything struck a chord. But for now, let's go to my top three takeaways. Number one. It's what's on the inside that counts. You can't control what happens around you, but you can control you. It's not so much about what's out there. It's really about what's in here. And out there is just a manifestation of what the collective of what's in everybody's heart is. So if you're looking out into the world and there's crime and corruption and people are treating each other like crap, you really have to just take You really have to check your own head and be like, what am I doing to contribute to that? Put another way, control what you can control. Number two, follow the thing that gets you alive. And once you make personal change, you inspire so many people. Even, and you, you can even do it. You don't have to be in a band. You don't have to be, you know, have a huge podcast to do this. You could just be a regular everyday Joe. This is what I love about this whole conversation. You are the only one that's with you your whole life. So live according to your own code and stop trying to make everyone else happy. Number three, just start. And you want to know what she said the number one regret was? Is that people felt like they didn't follow their heart and they didn't follow their path. And they just kind of fell into a job that wasn't satisfying to them. And they did it their whole entire life. And now here they are on, the, on their deathbed. You know, I never really pursued what was really important to me, what I really felt passionate about. I'll keep saying it till I'm blue in the face. Take action now, course correct later. Just get on your way. And by the way, getting on your way doesn't have to be some grand plan. And once you make personal change, you inspire so many people. Even, and you, you can even do it. You don't have to be in a band. You don't have to be... You know, I have a huge podcast to do this. You could just be a regular everyday Joe. John Purcelli, thank you again. I hope all of you are as inspired by his words and more importantly, his actions and the life he's built as I am. If you were, we'd love it if you share this podcast so it can make a difference in more people's lives. Leave a review or take a screenshot on your phone and post it to your social media. Tag us at 10,000 Nose and at Matty Dell so we can thank you. Connect with us at 10,000nose.com and get added to our mailing list. It's simple to do and we'd love to have you. Next Friday, we'll be back with former MTV VJ 
Dan Cortez. But don't forget to tune in for my brief little Monday morsels to kick off your week. We will see you soon. 